listening to the Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm Alex Stevens, and joining me today to discuss Germany's energy transition is my colleague here at IER, Paige Labramont. Paige is a policy analyst here at IER. Paige, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Alex. So I've had a few people ask that I do more episodes on nuclear energy, and you write quite a bit about nuclear for Catalyst and some other uh, publications. So I figured, why not have Paige on and we can chat about what's going on in Germany and talk a little bit about nuclear energy and its future. Um, Favorite topics. The German exit from nuclear power, it's part of its energy transition, which is a word that I can never pronounce. It's energy, energy venda. Energy yes. So this started back in 2010, and my understanding is that this wasn't completely climate-driven, uh, actually, the, the decision to get, go away from nuclear power and adopt more renewable energy. Um, can you just talk a little bit about... Uh, what precipitated uh, Germany's decision to uh, go through with this energy transition and uh, what originally sort of propelled it? Yeah, so um, Energy Venda began overall in 2010, um, and animosity to nuclear energy was always part and parcel of that. But in 2011, following the Japanese earthquake and the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear accident, Germany immediately shut down all of its nuclear reactors, and it did um, a systematic review of them. Um, and it was really interesting because so there were two commissions. One was in charge of examining the reactor safety, and the other was an ethics commission. The reactor safety commission found that all of the reactors in Germany were in perfect, safe working order, and that it was far less likely that any similar accident would happen in Germany versus in Japan. I mean, for obvious reasons, Germany is not a island nation that has frequent earthquakes. It's just not, um, you know, an, an issue that is as likely to happen there. And the, the reactor construction as well is more um, is more safe um, just by design. Uh, and so that commission found that it was far less likely that anything would happen there. But the ethics commission had a finding that is equal parts fascinating and infuriating. They found that the actual risks from the nuclear power plants had not changed, but the perception of those risks had. And that focus on perception is something that the nuclear industry, even globally, has had to contend with for its entire existence. Um, just the way that nuclear came about being part of you know the, the, uh, atom- the development of the atomic bombs coming first just really set a tone. And um, for a lot of people, it's impossible to to understand the actual safety of reactors because they just have this bad bad taste in people's mouths. They have a bad idea about it and what it means. And so um, anytime something happens, um, that only exacerbates that perception issue. And Germany is somewhere where that has always been the case. Their Green Party has had significant historical animosity toward nuclear, um, and that really never went away. Yeah, so give us a sense of how much uh, capacity Germany's retired, I guess. Uh, at its peak, how, how many nuclear power plants w- were running in Germany, and where, have they, uh, where are they at now? 
So um, in 2011, Germany had 17 operating nuclear reactors providing about a quarter of its electrical output. Um, as of April 31st, they have zero operating nuclear reactors. Uh, they shut down their final three at the end of April. And the shutdown for that was what uh, precipitated your column at, at Catalyst. What was the title of that again? Just uh, I'll include it in the show notes, yeah. but uh, it's, uh, it's sort of the organizing principle for our conversation, I guess, today. So It was the death knell of German nuclear. So what has the death knell of German nuclear done to electricity prices, reliability, all the things that we care about here at IER? So uh, German energy prices have been skyrocketing for the past few years. Um, they are actually, from January of 2020 to January of 2023, there's been nearly a 300% rise in electricity prices. And um, that, that there was even more extremes. In, in August of last year, it was 469 euros per megawatt hour. Uh, and that is just, no one can pay that. <laughs> That's not sustainable for keeping the lights on at all. So how, give us a sense of like how much that had to do, though, with obviously the, the Russian-Ukrainian war is kind of playing a role in things, uh, but the retirement of nuclear is playing a role in things. What's like the breakdown of the grid in Germany in terms of gas and nuclear and these things, and then... Uh, just, just, just so people have a sense of, you know, how much each one of these things is playing a role, I guess. So in 2020, um, the German grid was 24% coal, 12% nuclear, 12% natural gas, 10% solar, and 9% biomass. Um, with, a, you know, a, oh, and 27% wind. Okay. Now that 27% of wind and that 10% of solar is incredibly intermittent. Um, you know, sun doesn't shine, wind doesn't blow, that power is going away. So undergirding that, you need your base loads. So you need either coal, nuclear, or natural gas. And now that all of the uh, natural gas is extremely limited um, after the Ukrainian war, and now that none of that 12% nuclear is there any longer, you either have to increase that coal or somehow increase the reliability of the wind and solar. And since there's not really a way to increase the reliability of the wind and solar, what you end up with are these images coming out of Germany of old growth forests and villages being raised to mine coal at the surface, because that's all there is left there. It's, just, you know, it's not a very large country, so they're, they're really unable to pursue the best mining practices or even to pursue the highest quality coal. They're just going after whatever's there, however they can get it. And they have to because that's the only way to keep the lights on right now. People are not going to tolerate not having available uh, uh, access to electricity, right? So if you no. if you uh, don't allow certain resources, people are going to just turn to whatever the cheapest, most available option is. So you know, outlawing or trying to regulate nuclear out of existence kind of makes sense that, okay, well, we're going to turn to and look for other resources and coal's kind of there as, uh, as sort of an option for them in Germany. You have to replace it with something. And yeah. that is how the German Green Party has become the party of coal. Uh, by pushing for the closure of these nuclear power plants, they've been forced, you know, they have to do something. And um, I think that they're learning that decisions have consequences. 
and that however excited they want to be about their win in the nuclear realm, they're going to have to do something about it. And I don't think they're going to be very happy with what that something is. Two questions here. So how has the government sort of responded to the huge increase in prices? Has there been a rethink at all of the energy transition? And then on the sort of other end, uh, public opinion around the energy transition there in Germany, where was it in like 2010-ish when they kicked this off? And um, has the public been rethinking the policies the government has pursued there as well? Yeah. So to answer the first question, they have instituted a price cap on both gas and electricity in Germany. Um, that price cap is 40 euro cents per kilowatt hour, um, and it's limited to 80% of last year's usage. Um, so it, it both encourages them to use less and subsidizes the price, but it's an incredibly expensive policy. I mean, you, I mean, you heard the electricity prices. It, they have to cover for that. Yeah. Um, so it's an incredibly expensive policy that shields consumers from the price impact of these policy decisions while there's a chance to reverse course. You know, um, this, this came into effect right before the closures, the final three closures. Um, so it shields people from the impact of a decision while the decision's happening. And then um, they pay for it later because they're paying, you know, through taxes for that, um, that price cap. And so it just creates economic disincentives for rational decision-making. I mean, it's in a way it's necessary because you can't have prices that high and have normal people be able to keep the lights on. And it's just, it shows how extreme, extremely poor their policy thinking on this was before. But I think that in the long term, this cap's only going to exacerbate that problem. It is shielding the problem from the public in a way that causes, you know, the impetus for change to not exist. Gotcha. Um, and so I think that's probably the main problem with that. And I mean, just the existence of the cap in the first place shows that things are dysfunctional. Sure. Um, and so that that's a problem. Uh, I think in terms of the popularity of nuclear power over time in Germany, at the, at the time of Fukushima, it was deeply unpopular. Um, as prices have risen and things have gotten more uncertain, it's become a lot more popular to a point where in December of or November of last year, before the planned December closures of the three, the last three units, Prime Minister Schultz uh, was forced to um, issue an executive order delaying the closure of the plants until April because they needed to get through the winter. Um, and so they did delay it, but there was nothing nothing else that could be done really within their political structure to like to fully stop this, um, or at least nothing that there was the political will to do. That was about the most that he could achieve on his own because they have a coalition style government, which makes it pretty difficult to get anything like that done quickly. Gotcha. Um, yeah, but so I think that, you know, it's become more popular over time, especially as, you know, as electricity prices rise, people's willingness to tolerate something they might not otherwise love changes, right? Sure. Um, you know, you might not tolerate at, you know, at 20 cents a kilowatt hour, what you're going to tolerate at 40 or 60 or 80. So, um, so is it fair to say that the price caps are kind of shielding the public from from directly having to experience these costs, these costs, but then down the line, 
uh, you know, whatever government spending goes on, and you know, it has to be covered either in in taxes or in new revenue, right? So they're going to pay for it and either higher, probably higher taxes somewhere down the line, right? Again, just with public opinion, do you have like exact numbers, survey numbers, or no? I don't have any recent survey numbers. Okay. Um, any survey numbers I have are from like 2020, so they're not really directly relevant anymore. Gotcha. Um, but it, I mean, there, there's in every headline you see and, and everything like there, there's been a shift, even in the, the pressure being placed on German politicians. Just the fact that he did feel the need to make that extension in itself was a pretty big reversal. Um, but it just was too little too late. Um, I mean, they closed three units in December of the previous year, of December of 2021, when they were well into the Ukrainian war and well into this price struggle. Um, so there was time for them to at least keep six of these units open. The companies that source that run run the plants and source the uranium said, we, we, we can make it work. If you are willing to let us continue operating, we will get the supply lines in place and we will keep this operating. And um, nothing was done, so they closed. Um, so they had the ability to keep 12% of, you know, their electricity on, on the grid, and they didn't. Gotcha. So from what I read, there does seem to be somewhat of a rethink going on in the EU broadly when it comes to nuclear, right? I, I saw yes. a headline about France blocking some motion just maybe it was yesterday or a couple of days ago um, in the EU uh, where they were trying to allow for nuclear to be maybe counted as a green source or what exactly is the yeah. pushback so, more broadly um, in the EU like there? The rest of the EU, a big reason that Germany did make the decision to keep them open for three more months or four more months was pressure from the EU. Because when Germany isn't able to meet its electricity demand, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Someone else makes up that shortfall. Honestly, a lot of the time it's French nuclear making up that shortfall. So it's not that, you know, Germany's just going to sabotage itself by doing this. The rest of Europe makes up the difference when they like where they can. Like, you know, it's a it's a tied together market. They they import and export to each other all the time. So the rest of Europe put a lot of pressure on the German government not to make the decision. Um, and yeah, there there is that um, the motion to make um, nuclear energy counted within the, the green system. Um, and it makes sense because it meets the criteria of, you know, not having carbon emissions. It has, you know, the same carbon emissions as wind and solar. Um, even after considering carbon intensity of construction. So it, it, it doesn't make sense not to count it unless you're not counting it for some alternate reason, which is why they weren't counting it. Um, so yeah, that, that's definitely interesting. And um, France also had a different, very interesting thing come down recently, which was um, France had in place for a while in their energy system, a rule preventing them from getting more, of their more than 50% of their electricity from nuclear despite having a large enough nuclear fleet to get more than that. Um, and it was part of, they had a proposed nuclear phase out for a while um, that Macron had been kind of preventing from actually going into effect for a, for a while. And it seems that they're considering, if not fully reversing that course, which is really good to see. Gotcha. So let's talk a little bit about nuclear here in the United States. 
I often get asked, you know, what is the future, something along the lines of like, what is the future of nuclear? Doesn't it seem so promising? It's, you know, no emissions, baseload energy. There's sort of a narrative around nuclear. And then there is a counter narrative that says, yeah, that's all great, but it's really expensive. Um, and I think when you look at projects like Vogel in, um, in, uh, down in Augusta, Georgia, I think it's Augusta, well, down in Georgia there, um, where you have all these crazy cost overruns and things, uh, there obviously seems to be something to the fact that building a nuclear p- plant is incredibly expensive. What is holding back nuclear here in the United States? Are these cost overruns policy-driven? Try to make sense of, uh, of so, nuclear for me. I think um, there's a few things the at play. Okay. There's definitely, um, there's an economies of scale issue. Um, the more you build something, the better you get at building it. We build nuclear plants just often enough right now to stay bad at it forever. <laughs> uh, like, you know, the first time you're building something, you're, you know, figuring out all the regulations as you go, figuring out the most efficient way to do it. it it's really expensive. Um, and with, you know, Watts Bar being the last plant that came online in like 2016, I think. And before that, they're not being one since the 90s. We're just not building them often enough to be good at it. And there's also the regulatory consideration. Um, the regulations, especially on Vogel, changed while they were building the plant. You can't run a construction project that way. It's just impossible. Like the, the anti-aircraft rule changed in the middle of construction. And instead of saying, okay, we're going to apply this rule to everything permitted after the date that the rule went into effect, they forced the rule to apply to a plant that was already being built. You can't regulate something during the construction process like that. It's just not sustainable. Explain the anti-aircraft rule because it, someone <laughs> told me about that. I, I hadn't known about it uh, beforehand. Yeah, so, it, it, it's an interesting regulation that kind of came in in the middle, like you said, in the middle of yeah, constructing anti- one of these. Yeah. The anti-aircraft rule is basically um, to prevent terrorist action using planes against nuclear power plants. Uh, but it changes some of the ways that it needs to be constructed, various you know, regulatory things that it needs to meet in the construction that when you've already poured the concrete, you have to go back and tear things out and put things back. And it just it just overcomplicates it and makes it far more expensive because if you're redrawing plans during construction, that means that construction's halted for however long it takes for you to do that. And that means that you're paying people during that time and, you know, you're paying for equipment during that time. Like the, all of these costs are just ballooning out of control while you're waiting. And that's a big, a big issue. Now, I'm not going to say that there weren't other issues at Vogel as well. There were definitely issues on the company side too, but all of it kind of mixes together to create a real problem. And I think like the more often we build reactors, the cheaper they get over time and reactors are interesting because their main costs are at the front end. The construction costs are really, really high, but the fuel costs are really low. The maintenance costs are really low and they can operate for 40 to 80 years with you know little input beyond that besides the cost of uranium, which is not very high compared to the output. Um, so yes, you're paying a lot on the front end, but over the life of the plant, Compared to, um, you know, wind and solar, where the cost, the construction costs on the front end are fairly high, but they only last 20 years, best case scenario, and it's usually shorter than that. 
and one bad hailstorm is going to totally change that dynamic. Gotcha. So when I usually raise the cost concerns and say, and I grant that it's, you know, probably mostly policy driven, but, you know, there there's other factors involved, interest rates going up makes any big project like that going to be more, more expensive and stuff. Setting all that aside, when I raise those concerns, people then bring up small modular reactors as being sort of the end run around uh, these problems. So could you talk a little bit about that technology? Some of the new small react, small modular reactor designs are really cool for several reasons. One of them is they require much smaller emergency planning zones than larger reactors. Uh, they require less personnel. They are smaller and easier to construct. They can sometimes be constructed offsite and then brought other places. Um, and they're passively safe. Um, so um, with the traditional reactor, if it melts down, it has to be shut off externally by an operator. But the small modular designs, if they melt down, they shut themselves off basically through um, the way that the fuel is released and then it, it, it shuts itself down. Um, so that passive safety element um, changes the way that it can be, you know, needs to be regulated, but it, and it also just makes it uh, safer from the perspective of the public as well. Um, but there's, they're a really cool technology because they are, um, they're more applicable to different situations. Um, being smaller allow, allows flexibility and it allows their locations to be different. They can be located closer to things um, and for more specific purposes. Uh, right now, um, there are a few different types of um, SMR under development. Uh, actually, just yesterday, um, Oaklo announced that it plans to build um, two of its new small modular reactors in Ohio. Um, it just got permission. I think it was yesterday. One thing that I want to talk about is sort of like the politics of nuclear then, too. So a lot of times I feel like nuclear is sometimes just a talking point where people who are concerned about climate change and these things will say, uh, we have to switch to re renewable energy. We have to, you know, move away from fossil fuels. And you'll have people on the right come back and say, yeah, well, what about nuclear? And it feels like, to me, at times, nuclear is a talking point, but I don't have a good sense of, well, is there actually like a political coalition that is being built that can move policy in a direction that sort of lowers the the uh, the the cost overruns and... Um, is there actually sort of a movement driving uh, some sort of change in this industry? So, yeah. like, do you have a good sense of what the uh, what the politics and and uh, the sort of process of you know building a coalition and, and all this is, is like around nuclear right now? Yeah. So I think I think nuclear has had an issue for a long time that it got as a holdover from the Navy. Um, so the nuclear navy was developed kind of alongside the commercial nuclear fleet. And so um, the the all press is good press idea never applied. It was always the least press possible is what, what, what the goal was. And I think until about the last 10 years, that was the comms perspective on nuclear stuff. And as a result, very little coalition building was done and public sentiment wasn't curried in the way that a lot of other industries Curried it, um, and so I think that that was a real a real problem that needed to be gotten around. And I think recently, like in the past couple of years, um, the industry's done a much better job 
advocating for itself in that way and building coalitions uh, to accomplish anything politically on the matter. And I think I think it's getting better. I don't think I don't think there's one overarching like co like coalition or group that's really doing it. I think it's a collection of a lot of different people with a lot of different motives. Um, I think there's people who are you know exclusively favor nuclear just by itself. Uh, I think there's people in on, on the left who favor, um, you know, any renewable technology, including nuclear. There's people on the left who favor all carbon neutral technologies except for nuclear. Um, I, I don't know that it fits neatly into anyone's boxes. Um, and I think that's one of its big problems. But I don't know that that's, you know, I don't know, it's not necessarily bad in and of itself. It's just that it, sure, it's made yeah. it harder for it to be developed because there's, you know, there's not that one big group really pushing hard and lobbying hard for it. It's kind of a collection of disparate groups with different ideologies and ideas. Just preparing for our conversation, I I, I did happen to see there was a survey that pointed to the fact that uh, support for nuclear in the U.S. Um, amongst the public is the highest it's been in a decade. So that seems to track what yeah, you're saying is that there, there are people trying to uh, like on the comm side, trying to uh, build the case for it. And um, just anecdotally, that I see that a lot in sort of policy conversations and stuff as well. So before we move to a wrap up, is there anything on Germany's energy transition or nuclear in general that we haven't covered that uh, you want to talk about or? Yeah, just one thing. Um, so Belgium right now is facing a very similar situation to what Germany um, face. They are planning to close all of their nuclear reactors by the end of the decade. And it it's being projected that that would result in absolute inability to keep their grid functional. Um, and so going planning on writing about that soon and seeing just what happens there, because hopefully the lesson that Germany is teaching will be will, will be learned, but we'll see. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I think Germany and a lot of these countries in Europe were seeing a sort of natural experiment and what happens when you switch to renewables and retire your base load. And uh, they were, I guess, lucky this past winter that, I, from my understanding, things were milder than they have been in historically. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens yeah. uh, down the line when uh, they have a normal winter and energy demand spikes and um, how they're able to deal with these things. So. Yeah, definitely scary to think about because, you know, energy decisions have real world consequences. When it gets very cold or very hot, you really want a reliable grid. Yeah. Did you see the uh, that uh, um, that article in The Economist about uh, more people dying from high energy prices in Europe than COVID this past year? Oh, I didn't see that. It was an interesting piece and, uh, you know, gets to a point that we make a lot about the importance of energy and obviously uh, the lack or inability to afford energy is going to have serious consequences for people. So yes, um, for I'll sure. plug that in the show notes too. It's an interesting read. So what are you currently working on uh, for IER? Uh, it could be nuclear related. Uh, just what should our listeners look out for uh, from you coming down the pipe? Yeah. So I would look out for um, our recent paper, not by me personally, but by the whole organization called The Economic and Strategic Importance of Domestic Mineral Production, which we've been writing a lot about 
as well on the side. So um, I've got articles coming out at Catalyst from it. I've got one in the Colorado Business Magazine um, on the same topic. And it all just covers the incredible mineral requirements of the energy transition and what it would take to create a domestic mining strategy that would even make that possible. Great. And then uh, just as a wrap up, I'm trying to do this new thing where I invite guests to you know, pitch a, a film or a book or something they're, they're reading or they enjoy. Uh, wh- what have you been uh, looking at lately and what do you want to tell our listeners about? Yeah. So I have been consuming Robert Jordan's The Wheel of Time series, um, a 14 book fantasy series um, on an epic scale. Um, I'm on book four now and they are just an incredible set of books with a really cool world, lots of excellent world building, uh, interesting characters, and a magic system that's just really neat. Um, And these books, um, most of them were published in the 90s. They are foundational to a lot of the fantasy books you'll read now. So pretty cool. Um, Yeah, it sounds interesting. The... uh, I've never been like much of a a fantasy kind of I, I don't know reader, but big like sci-fi fan, and I know like the fans of those books they have like re- really deep audiences that uh, like people get really into it and stuff. So it's uh, yeah it's definitely an I'm interesting big... uh, culture, I guess. It, it, yeah. There's nothing necessarily counter I'm about a, it. But, I'm a yeah. big fan of both genres. Yeah, um, and yeah, you find a lot of really interesting, just a lot of really interesting themes and perspectives in that kind of genre fiction that reflect on the real world. And um, yeah, can't get enough of it. Great. And I'm going to be recommending a book called Following Their Leaders, Political Preferences and Public Policy. It's by Randall Holcomb and published by Cambridge University Press. I've been reading this. I'm like maybe halfway through it. Uh, It's sort of a follow-up on his book on political capitalism, which I've talked about on this show before. Um, It's just about how... uh, Basically, there's an assumption that, you know, voters kind of just like have their preferences for different policies and they're out there. And that's sort of the natural assumption in political science. Um, But what he kind of points out is, no, actually, there's a process where uh, people who have like uh, sort of inside information, elites sort of generate the policy discussion and the platforms that are up for grabs uh, in political elections. And it's just sort of an interesting economic take on how it is that voters come to have their their preferences and, and things and what sort of drives that. So um, I highly recommend it. Interesting book. Uh, not Probably not as fun as, as fantasy fiction, but um, maybe for this audience, uh, there'll be a few readers out there. And my guest today has been Paige Lammermann from IER here. Paige, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Alex. 